The ZDM Podcast Network. Hey everyone and welcome back fam to a new episode of my podcast Hope is Real. It's a podcast to help you feel a little less alone, a bit more inspired and a lot more hopeful. Man, what a season we have had so far. Thank you so much to everyone that has been listening and uh, that has been coming on every week and, and checking out the podcast. If this is your first time listening, thank you. Welcome. Uh, welcome to Hope is Real and let me tell you, I am so freaking excited about uh, the person that I have on the podcast today. Uh, he is a incredible advocate, uh, Kevin Hines. He miraculously survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge in an attempt to take his own life. He has turned his story around and has become an international voice and an advocate for change. His story has been uh, heard by hundreds of millions of people around the world. That is not an exaggeration, by the way. Hundreds of millions of people have been impacted by his uh, story through films, docos, books. And I am so excited to be able to sit down with him today and talk more about his story and how he continues to work through his own battle as well uh, with bipolar disorder. Uh, but Kevin Hines and his story coming up right after this. Now, we will be talking about uh, all things mental health. So if at any point during this episode you feel like you need someone to talk to, if you're here in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737. Uh, or if you're listening from anywhere else around the world, go to www.thevoicesofhope.org and there are helplines available there. Kevin Hines, thank you so much for joining me. I am so freaking excited to have you on this episode of the podcast. You were like the OG mental health advocate that I saw when I very first started going into this realm. I remember, you probably won't remember this, but I um, came to LA and was at one of your um, premieres for the doco that had come out about your life and we met at like a art display that was going on before the actual yes, doco Yes, I happened. remember that. Oh, yes, yes, I remember that. I, I remember that. I fangirled so hard because at that point, <laughs> Girl on the Bridge, my doco, was just starting to be filmed and I was looking at you and I was like, wow, this guy's amazing. <laughs> and to be able to sit down with you now, I'm so freaking excited. You are, for those of you who don't know that are listening to this, Kevin Hines really is the OG of mental health advocacy. You, like I said, were one of the first ones that I ever saw. Your story is freaking insane and so phenomenal. And I'm really excited to be able to share that again today. I think that, you know, I was just talking to my producer earlier that your story really has just gone everywhere. And every interview that I see of yours, so many people are impacted. And to be able to share it today with a, a younger audience, with, you know, the teenagers who follow me, I'm really excited for them to be able to hear from you, hear from the person that inspired me to, to get into advocacy as well. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join me. I'm so excited. So excited to oh, have you. Yes. Gonna Thank be- you very much. I really, really appreciate that. Oh my gosh, of course. Thank you. I know that you're a very, very, very busy guy. And I, like I said, the first thing that I ever saw of yours, I remember it was a interview clip of the, basically like a, a key part of your story. And I really want to kind of give most of the time of this podcast to really go back and for you to tell your story from beginning to where you are now. I'll ask questions in between, but can you tell us, can you tell the listeners your story? Absolutely. So if we're going to do it, you know, justice, we have to go back to the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's the time I was born. I was born to uh, biological parents, I'm adopted, who after they had me and my brother, you know, very tragically, they succumbed to substance use disorder, you know, drugs and alcohol. And eventually, before I ever got to meet them again, after my adoption, they ended up both dying very tragically. 
because of their brain disease, which they had been diagnosed in their day with manic depression, what we today call bipolar disorder, the same brain disease I have. And they fell to hard times and they, and they would perish that way. But after being born to them, me and my brother were born in, in abject poverty. We lived in and out of crack motels. We had nothing and we had no one. Our birth parents didn't leave us unattended every day to go do score and sell drugs because they didn't love us. The opposite was true. They were trying to keep a roof over our heads. And so they would leave us unattended to go do those things. And of course, when you do that, it invites people to wonder, what are you doing with those children? And one very seedy motel clerk one day called the police and said, no more am I going to listen to these screams and cries of these infants being neglected. And so the police come in with child protective services and they take us away from our birth parents and they place us into the foster care system in America, in San Francisco, a system that was broken and a system that still is broken much like the brain and mental system of our society today. And my brother and I were supposed to be adopted together. That was the plan. That was the idea. But that rarely ever happens in these situations, and it didn't happen in this one. We bounced around from home to home, all this neglect. And in one of those homes filled with neglect, we both get bronchitis and he died. And he died right next to me. So I immediately developed this severe detachment disorder from reality and abandonment issues that follow me until today. And then I bounced around from home to home about five more homes. But unlike my brother, may he rest in peace, Jordash, I get very, very lucky. I land in the home of Peter and Deborah Muller. And Peter was in the army and they were both a transitional home for kids. So like all of these kids would come to their home at the same time, foster kids, and then they'd be go out and place to be adopted in other places. And one beautiful day, a lovely young woman named Deborah Joan Hines walks in their door looking for a little girl to take home to be the sister of Elizabeth Catherine, the girl she and Patrick Kevin Hines had already taken in. They wanted to give Elizabeth a sister. But the first thing Debbie saw on the carpeted floor was me with my then birth name, Giovanni. And she goes home to Pat Hines and says, let's take this kid in. He needs us. And they took me in at nine months of age. But of course, I was violently ill for the next 30 days. Because of so many displacements, because of being abandoned, because of losing my brother, I was very sick. And I've been being fed in my formative months only what my birth parents could steal, Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk. So my gut to brain health was very poor. And I was by definition mentally ill from the very beginning. After 30 days of being in the Heinz home, Debbie comes to my crib exhausted one day. She hasn't slept in a month. And she leans into my crib and she goes, Gio, because I hadn't changed my name yet. She goes, Gio, you're safe. We're not going anywhere. But if you don't knock this off, we're going to give you back. <laughs> <laughs> and she, I know, right? Total contradiction, mom. <laughs> but she, <laughs> but she said that was the first night in a month we both slept soundly as if somehow my infant mind had understood her. Wow. Yeah. And uh, on the 31st day, she came to my crib and she said, I just looked up at her and I smile. And for her, it was like we'd gotten past the hurdle. And I was safe. And I knew I was safe. And they would go ahead and, you know, it would take a long time. There would be a two-year court hearing battle between Pat and Debbie Hines and my birth parents for custody of me, wherein my birth father uh, would, outside of the court hearing at some point, accost and assault an undercover police officer and he would be killed. But he was looking for drugs. And that's, that was his life. I wouldn't learn that until I was 12. And then my birth mother would go into the courtroom one day to say, 
to Pat and Debbie, Patrick and Deborah, please take care of my son. I can do this no longer. She forfeited custody of me at that point because she couldn't do it by herself. And so I get officially adopted. I think I was four years old when I was officially adopted, March 17th. And I, I end up growing up in this beautiful home. Pat and Debbie Hines by no means had it all, but they had worked tirelessly for what they had. Mm. They had built this life and they wanted to give back to kids. They could have had natural born children easily, but they took in three kids from three separate homes into one household and made a melting pot of a family. And it was magical. Me, I'm mixed. My brother's black. My sister's white. Pat and Debbie Rausch and German people were confused. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, we didn't care what people thought about us, what we looked like. We were happy. You know, some restaurants wouldn't allow us in to dine at night because of what we look like as a family. We got up and went somewhere else. Yeah, it was bad. We were happy and we were filled with unconditional love and hope. Hope for a future. And unlike my poor brother, I had a chance. Mm. My brother, Jordash, had no chance. Well, he fast forward a little bit and I'm in high school and I'm riding on a wave. You know, I've gone from a 1.8 GPA to 2.8. Got my picture up that said most improved, which is ridiculous when you think about it. And I'm working hard at school. I'm on the wrestling team. I'm on the, at the varsity level. I won a championship there. Played football on the football team. We went to state. It was on the swim team for about a day. That proved too <laughs> difficult for me. Was on the speech and debate team for two days before they kicked me off, but I was there. <laughs> their, their, their loss. And at 17, I was in a play. I did a lot of high school theater. And I was in a play called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And I'm playing this character called Gatch. And Gatch is like this philandering businessman. He's got the wife at home, but he's messing around with all the secretaries in the office, that guy. And I'm playing that character. And I'm wearing one of my father's old suits and ties that they'd hemmed to fit me because he's 6'1 and I'm not. And I'm on stage. And now I had been having all these troubles. And I didn't know what to call them, right? I didn't know how to define them. I didn't know what they meant. And my parents were aware I was unsound and unwell, but they didn't know what to do about it. And we had never dealt with the term mental illness. And I'm having paranoid delusions at home and, and hallucinations, auditory and visual, and manias and depressions, but I didn't know what they were. I didn't know how to articulate what I was going through, so I buried it. But there I was on the stage on opening night in front of 1,200 people, not once it was open. And I begin to believe that 1,200 people are going to simultaneously get up rise, rush the stage and end me. Wow. I thought they were coming to kill me. Extreme paranoid delusion hit. And it's a very severe symptom of bipolar type one with psychotic features. And I ran off the stage and I ran to the lobby and the theater director met me there. And he was my favorite teacher in the whole world. You know, he was pissed drunk. He had substance use disorder. We, we wouldn't learn that till later. And he was a primary alcoholic and he was really struggling, but nobody knew that. And parents would bring him their his favorite bottles of booze. So multiple parents, multiple bottles of booze, and nobody recognizes this was a damaging problem. And he meets me in the lobby and he sits me down in the theater treasurer's chair. And he's like, in a drunken stupor, he's like, Heinz, can you please finish the performance? It's not even intermission yet. What are you doing? And I just babbled incoherent nonsense for the next 10 minutes. I couldn't make out three words in a row that made sense. And of course, John Fennell, the theater director, calls my mom. And she picks me up and she takes me almost in the next couple of days to my first psychiatrist. To backtrack, John Fennell, the theater director, would be the first person of 16 people I care about deeply. I loved him like a, like a second father figure. Mm. He would be the first of 16 people in my lifetime 
that I would care about that would die by his hands. He would take his life. And then the first psychiatrist I had turned out to be on methamphetamines the entire time he treated me and his other patients, considered one of the best in his field by all who knew him. He was living with uh, methamphetamines addictions and he would take his life. So all this turmoil is going on and I'm a mess. And so from 17 to 19, I'm on this rocky road of like skyrocketing into mania. But you know, once you go up, you have to come down. Mm -hmm. And coming crashing down these dark abysses of depression and, and pain. And at the point that was right before my attempt to take my life, my severe attempt, I couldn't bear the weight of the pain any longer. It was, it was too much. And you understand this because you've been there. Mm where you see only pain, you see, feel, hear, touch, and know only pain. And you believe in your mind that it will never be relieved, that it will never go away, Mm. that you will never find peace again. And when you get to a place when you believe there is no other side to your pain, then all you want to do is escape it. And that's when suicide becomes an option for people. Lethal emotional pain leads to suicidal ideation and then suicide attempts. And in my case, it was the same. At 19, with my father in the very next room, willing and able to help me, my father, who, by the way, loved me dearly, who would do anything for me to keep me safe, I believed he hated me. I believed I was everyone's greatest burden. And I believe they all wanted me gone. Did I ask any of them? No. If I asked them, what would they have told me? They would have told me they love me and they need me here and that suicide is not the answer. But I didn't ask any of them. And I ended up making my way out to the Golden Gate Bridge on September 25th, 2000. And of course, you know, uh, as you know, I leapt off. Rather than go into the gory details, I'll say this. Three things that day saved my life. A woman driving by who saw me go over the rail who called her friend in the Coast Guard who happened to be manning the waters of the bridge at that moment. Number one. Number two, before the Coast Guard boat arrived, a sea lion pushed me to the surface to keep me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind it. And number three, the back surgeon, Dr. Jonathan Levin, I had to reunite after 22 years with the Dr. Jonathan Levin, who saved my back and my ability to stand, walk, and run from what I did. Wow. And that, that is incredible because I, I, you'll be able to give us the exact number, but not many people, not many people, let alone survive jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, but not many people do that and are unparalyzed. The fact that you can walk and share your story and everything that you do today is an absolute, complete and utter miracle. Do you know the numbers on people that have both survived and are able to walk today? So I'll break it down like this. 99.9% of the people who have leapt off the Golden Gate Bridge in the last 87 years of the bridge being open are gone. 99.9% of them never again got to share their stories. It's about a total of 40 individuals, maybe 41 now, that have survived the Golden Gate Bridge jump. Five of us can stand, walk, and run. They call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world. There's a book of the same name by Ben Sherwood about our story. Wow. 
So I look at this life in a very particular way, as I'm sure you totally understand. I am of the belief that we all get to be here. And getting to be here, in my opinion, is a privilege and a gift, no matter the pain we might be in. I'll be clear. There are people in worlds of pain right now, physically, emotionally, mentally, all of the above. There are people around the world being abused and neglected in every country in the world. There are people going through hordes of pain. But my stance on that type of pain, all those types of pain, is that you can survive it if you believe survival is possible. And in my darkest of hours, since my attempt off the Golden Gate Bridge, I've always come to the belief that, the, the belief that I will survive my pain. And there are two things I do every time I'm suicidal as I live with chronic thoughts of suicide. There are two things I do every time suicidal ideations arise. One, I say to myself, my thoughts do not have to become my actions. They can simply be my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And two, I turn to the closest person to me and I say four simple but very effective words. I need help now. And that's my shorthand for suicidal crisis. And Jazz, I'm telling you this as clear as I can see you through the screen. I'm telling you this, that if if I was suicidal in this moment, even on your podcast, I would tell you. And I would say, Jazz, I need help now. And what would you do if I did that? Get you help. You'd get me help. And I I think that's so... It's so incredibly important for people to understand because we hear and all the time is ask for help, ask for help, ask for help. And to be able to stand there and go, actually, no, it is one of the most important things that you can do. We're not just saying ask for help for no reason. Ask for help because it can keep you here another day and it can help understand, help you understand that the beliefs that, that you wholeheartedly are feeling are just your internal reality and not necessarily the external truth. That's something mm. I had to come to really understand as well with, you know, I relate so much to what you were saying about wholeheartedly believing that you are burdening everyone else around you and that everyone else wanted you gone. Those are the things that I believed as well. And to, it took me asking for help and getting help and eventually coming to understand that that was my belief, but it wasn't the truth. And so to be able to recognize that now for you and to be able to have the strength in those moments to know that the best thing to do to ask for help, that's something that I really hope that everyone who's listening to this podcast really can grasp and, and take away from this. I say it all the time in high schools when I do presentations that asking for help doesn't make you weak, it makes you wise. And it is one of the most important things that that you can do. And I also... Just, I know that you obviously kind of skimmed briefly over it, but I want to go back because I think it's so insane that the one part of your, the three things that, that kept you here was a sea lion, a sea lion that held you above the water until Coast Guards got there. Like, that's, that's insane. That's actually like, how, how long was the sea lion holding you up for? Put it like this. When I got to the surface, so I, I went, when I hit the water, you have to understand you're you're falling at eighty, uh, nearly eighty miles per hour. So mm-hmm. closing in on the speed of terminal velocity, it's a four second fall. When you hit the water, it's like hitting a solid brick wall because of the velocity at which you fell. It's like hitting a solid. Mm-hmm. You stop for less than a second, and then a vacuum sucks you under seventy feet beneath the water surface. And I opened my eyes, and I was drowning. I didn't want to drown, and I didn't know which way was up or down. So I end up making my way to the surface with a broken back in several places. I shattered three vertebrae. 
and I, I make it to the surface and right as I think it's over, right as I think I, because I kept going down in the water, I couldn't get back to the surface. I go down one more time. I think this is it. This is, this is where I go. I'm, I'm going to die here. And nobody is going to know that I don't want to. No one's going to know that I knew I made a mistake. And then this creature begins to circle beneath me. And of course, I think it's a shark not knowing. I think, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. I didn't die jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. A shark is going to devour me. But it turned out there were witnesses on the Golden Gate Bridge who were looking down, even witnesses taking pictures of this sea lion circling beneath me. It was bumping me on my shoulders, my neck, and my knees, keeping me afloat in a circle beneath me. And it did not leave from beneath me until I heard the murmur of the Coast Guard boat coming behind me. And then it just took off. Of course, I still think it's a shark. I don't learn until later, as I'm on a television program promoting a suicide prevention campaign in San Francisco, and I say on the show, I thought there was a shark beneath me. When the show went viral online, you know, before viral was cool, one man's letter stuck out of all the rest. His name was Morgan. He was from Las Vegas, Nevada. He was on the bridge that day with his mom visiting. He had a, a camera. He took a picture of me laying atop the water. And he sent me the picture. It's a very morbid picture. It's me laying atop the water with this creature circling beneath me. And as the pictures, you go from picture to picture, you see the circling motion of the sea line. It's incredible. And I don't know how long it was there with me. I just know it was there with me enough for enough time for it to save my life. That's incredible. A creature that didn't speak my language saved me from what I did. Incredible. It is. It's it's absolutely incredible. And I also know that you've, you've said a lot as well, a big emphasis on your story, that the moment that your hands left the railing, you knew that you had made a mistake. And, yeah. you know, up until that point, you were so certain that this is what you were going to do. This is what you wanted to do. And I fully back what you've said there myself, the, the few times that I have come very, very close to death and very quickly in that moment being like, oh my gosh, like I... I, I don't want to do this. And even though you're in so much pain and it feels like this is never going to end, the fact that I believe it's everyone who has survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge have regretted at the moment that their hands have left the railing, right? Every person that's gone public with the fact that they've survived going off the Golden Gate Bridge has said they all had the same instantaneous regret that I had. Now, thousands of people from around the world who have survived attempts of all means have said the same, mm -hmm. that the moment they thought it was too late, they recognized they didn't want to die. It's almost a fight or flight mode and you fight, right? So mm. the other thing you can liken it to is that all of them may have recognized in that moment that their thoughts did not have to become their actions. Yeah. And that is so incredibly important. And I think one of the things that ultimately I think went on to save my life is that realization every time that I had these thoughts and they would be continuous, these impulsive, like, you've got to go, you've got to go do this now. Like, people don't want you here. You're a burden. You're unlovable. You don't deserve to be here. And it would be these, for me, it was these consistent and yet 
kind of impulsive actions of I need to go and do this and then the world will be better, but learning that these are just thoughts and they don't have to become actions. And I wrote it in a a letter that I had to myself, which was called Dear Suicidal Me. And it was a letter that I had written to my future suicidal self to just try and keep myself here. And it would have things like, you know, don't listen to sad music, you know, it's what you always do, yet it makes it, you know, feel worse. And But at the end it would say, you have the ability right now for this to not be your reality. Your actions and your decisions have the ability to change your future. And for me, that little decision after decision after decision to not act is what changed everything. And it's so important, especially for, again, I, I keep referencing the younger people, but I do know that that's majority of the people that follow me are younger and their brains are still developing and to understand that your thoughts and these things that you're feeling and these things that you're believing and these impulses that you might have, they don't have to go into action. Instead, the action can be what you've said on this podcast of asking for help, those four words, I need help now. Not I need help tomorrow. I need help now. now. Right now, right Mm -hmm, now. mm -hmm. Maybe it's not the first, second, third, fourth, fifth person you turn to that's going to get your back, right? Because Mm -hmm. not everyone's willing to accept, understand, or empathize with that kind of pain. But by the sheer probability of the number of people you talk to, someone will be willing to empathize with your pain. So keep going, keep asking every time and don't stop. In 22 years of living with chronic thoughts of suicide, I've always stayed alive. I know it works. I know it works, but I will say, it's not that simple. I will say for all of those people that ask for help, there are so many that will not. And all of the people that are so well brain pain wise and they're doing fine and they're stabilized and they don't have diagnoses and they're, they're thriving, those individuals have a responsibility to people in pain to say to those they love, care about, know, or don't know from Adam who they see or are hurting, can I help you? Mm. What do you need from me right now? Mm-hmm. I've got your back. I can see you're in pain. Can I be there for you right now? Maybe I don't know you, but you're human and so am I, and that's all I need. Yeah, I love that. And I, you know, the, the reality is, is that suicide prevention is everybody's responsibility. And as much as we tell people to ask for help, we also have to be willing to offer help without having to be asked. And I think that it's so incredibly important that when we're talking about, you know, mental illness and suicide, and we're, we're even online and in conversations that when you're someone who doesn't understand, I always hear the phrases attention seeking, throwing around and all of those kinds of things, people are listening. People in your world are struggling and that whether it's you're talking about them or not, they're listening to what you're saying. And you hear it when, you know, things happen with celebrities or anything like that. And if you are, you know, talking bad about these people or about the situation, then people around you who are struggling are listening. And it's really important that we take the time, if, if you're not someone who, like you say, is, is struggling with their brain, to take the time to educate yourself on the response of this. And I, I would really love to ask you, as someone who, you know, you actively live with bipolar disorder, and I think it's still something that is so incredibly misunderstood. Can you tell us what it's like, one, to live with bipolar actively, but also two, the things that are helpful and unhelpful that people say or do with you? So I'll start with the later. The things that are unhelpful that people say or do are the people who treat me like a patient and not a person. I'm not a consumer. I hate that term. I'm not some shopper at Target. I, I'm a person who's a citizen of hope, trying to find light at the end of my tunnel, trying to find hope and that beauty in this existence and that, that idea that I can survive any pain that comes my way. That's who I am, right? And this bipolar depression, 
what happens is I skyrocket into a manic euphoric natural high. And then once that high has run its course, I crash into a darkness I can only describe as some of the greatest pain I've ever experienced. A place where my belief of who I am is dampened into one of self-pity, delusions of grandeur. I find myself self-destructive and in a place where I see no hope. And so when I get to that place, that's the most important time for me to say, I need help now. Mm. To my family, to my friends, to my wife, mostly my wife, if I'm honest, my therapist, of course, but not everybody has those type of support networks. So we as people who, and I didn't always. So, so as a person who's been through the trenches and the struggles over and over and over again, you have to, in some ways, you have to get used to the darkness. In that getting used to the darkness, you have to understand that there's always light through it. Mm. That if you just keep walking far enough, you will reach it. And if you haven't reached it, you haven't walked far enough to get there. Mm. And so the way I survive my pain and my struggles is by demanding that hope exist. I don't just wait for it. I, I put in the work. You know what that's about. Mm-hmm. I exercise. I eat clean. I educate myself. I educate myself about every bipolar disorder Google alert that comes out so that I know how to fight it. And I know what the best, most reputable, formidable forms of treatment are. And I add them into my program, into my, into my routine of wellness. I do so many things. You know, I lived for years with eating disorders and not many people know that. I don't really talk about it too often, but I've been talking about it more. And, you know, we all talk about healthy eating, but that's different for every person. So today I'm not restricted with my food like I used to be. What I do is I eat anti-inflammatory foods most meals, most days, but then I have those meals that are by definition, by a doctor's definition, not very good for your, for your gut. But I don't eliminate them from my life because they, I enjoy them, you know, and I, and I want to enjoy the food I eat. I don't want to make it a restrictive situation where I'm damaging my view of what that does to my wellness. So I stay stable with education, exercise, eating healthily, therapy, and therapy is different for every person. So like you have to think about all the types of therapy. Mm. Do I love talk therapy? Jazz, you know, I can talk. So <laughs> I, I love me some talk therapy. You bet. But I also love music therapy, art therapy. I will paint a canvas on a whim, you know, like I love breathwork therapy and vasal breathing that helps my nervous system and my brain pain go away. And you got to put in the work. Everyone wants the uberfication of their wellness yesterday. No, you're not going to get that one pill. You're not going to get that one exercise, or that one food that's going to solve all your problems. Yeah. If you don't know anywhere else to go, go to Google and type in how to get well from, you know, there's so many ways to balance your brain. And I think that's so important, especially looking at all the different kinds of therapy, because I think often, especially, I would say, especially young people, I think anyone who maybe tries out therapy for the first time and it doesn't go so well, or they don't like it, then they go, well, that's not for me. And then they close it all. And that's something I always did. And I, I talk about it very openly that I would walk into therapist's office and wouldn't listen to a thing that they said, because in my mind, my illness was my identity. Therefore, it will never change. So I believed they would tell me all these things to do and I'll be like, well, you don't know what you're talking about because this is who I am. This will never change. And when I started to go in, when I started to go in with the mindset of actually, maybe this is something that I am struggling with. It's not who I am to the core. Then maybe 
maybe just maybe what you're saying might help. And it took me so many therapists to get to one that I felt understood me. And it is not a, you know, a one hit wonder, like you said, it's, it takes time. And there are so many different kinds of therapy that you can do, whether it is, you know, breath work or music or all of that kind of thing. Do not give up if you've gone to therapy and it hasn't worked out on the first try, second try, third try. Keep going. Keep trying. You got to. And also very quickly, Kevin. I just want to say as well, you know, you're talking about how you're constantly, you know, going through the trenches and then you find the light and you're you're walking towards light. And I think you have become that light for so many people. You have spent so much of your life having to actively find hope. And now because of you, so many people have hope. They have hope that things can change. They have hope that they can survive. They have hope that their illness, like I said, the illness is not their identity and that they can do something with that. And as someone who has been so impacted by your story, you know, this, I was the very, very, very beginning of my advocacy journey to watch you. That gave me so much hope, so much hope that things could change, so much hope that I could be a voice, so much hope that the pain that I had been through might be able to give one other person hope. And so thank you on behalf of the millions of people that you have touched and that your story has touched, you have single-handedly, I would say, you, you changed the game for mental health. There's so many people now speaking about it and, and it's so incredible. And I look back and when you started doing this, no one was. No one was doing it. And, you know, there were people that were maybe actors or sports stars or people that had names already that would come out and talk about maybe their battles with depression, but not the way that you have done it. So, Thank you. Thank you for spearheading the way. Thank you for offering hope continuously and dedicating your life to that. I really hope that everyone who has been listening to this, the younger people that may have been introduced to your story for the first time today, can understand the impact that you've had and also continue to find hope in your story. And I want to ask you, just as a final question on here, this podcast is called Hope Is Real, right? And and I did that. I created this because I wanted people to know that no matter what it is that they're facing, no matter what it is that they're going through, that they can believe that there is always, always hope. What does hope mean to you? Hope means everything to me. I see hope in the tiniest of creatures. That caterpillar crawling up the tree to go into its chrysalis and become a butterfly, that's hope. I see hope in the simplest of people, the people who are just living their everyday life, trying to get by, living paycheck to paycheck, but they're they're keeping food on their kid's table. I see hope right there. I see hope in the people like you, Jazz, who it's so wild that I inspired you in some way because when I watch your content today and how you've grown in this space, you have been inspiring me. So it's reciprocal in that way. So I see hope when I look in your eyes in a, in a huge way. And hope to me means that I will find a way through the pain, no matter how difficult that pain is. I will always find a way. And even when I get back to that space of only seeing, feeling, hearing, touching, and knowing that pain, even though that's all I feel, there is a glimmer of hope inside that struggle. And there always will be. Don't let your pain defeat you. Let it build you brick by brick from the ground up until you are stronger than ever. And no matter your pain, always hold on to a little bit of hope because that hope can expand, that hope can take over, and then, of course, you can survive your pain. I love that. Thank you so much for taking the time to 
join me and to to hang out with everyone who's listening to this podcast, Kevin. You are such an incredible inspiration and I'm so thankful to now be able to call you a friend as well. We got to hang out in the States when I was there recently and just to see everything that you're doing is amazing. And uh, for those of you who don't yet follow Kevin, please, you must go follow him. His story, there, there is books, there is docos, there is everything. What what are you working on? At the, can you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Sure. No, I can. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so everyone who, everyone who feels up to it, Follow me at Kevin Hines Story or check out my YouTube channel. Uh, it's got 600 plus videos all designed to better your brain health. Check that out. Uh, but we're making a new film called The Net, looking at the 87-year effort to raise a net at the Golden Gate Bridge, the eight fights that failed previous, the current fight that has succeeded, and the fact that by December of this year, not one more beautiful soul will ever again die off the Golden Gate Bridge and it will become the largest, most brightest, and powerful beacon for suicide prevention right around the world. Wow. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. That And the fact that you're, oh my gosh, what a 180 that is. The fact that you're doing, you're, you're, the film that you're creating is, is that. Oh my gosh. Everyone, you must go follow Kevin Hines' story on all social media. Go onto his YouTube. If you are struggling with things, go check his stuff out. You're incredible, Kevin. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm so excited to see this new film. What I get emotional just thinking about that. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for uh, coming on and chatting with me today. Thank you, Jazz. Well, there you have it, Kevin Hines. What an incredible, incredible, inspiring story. Um, please, if you don't follow Kevin, go follow him. I really hope uh, that you're leaving this podcast today feeling a little bit less alone, a bit more inspired, and of course, a lot more hopeful. And like I said at the beginning, if this episode has triggered anything for you, or if you feel like you need help, please know that the most important thing that you can do right now is to talk to someone. Again, if you're in New Zealand, there are many ways that you can do this. Uh, our local helplines, Youthline, 1737 or if you're overseas head to www.thevoicesofhope.org for a list of helplines in your area you do not have to do this alone like Kevin Hines said the most important thing that you can do right now is I need help now remember that in all things hope is real and change is possible